Okay, I have to interrupt this nice conversation because we have to start. And it's my great pleasure to welcome among us Professor Charles Butterworth, who is an emeritus professor uh, of government and politics at the University of Maryland College Park. Um, he, speci he specialized in Arabic and Islamic philosophy, especially the political aspects of uh, Arabic and Islamic philosophy. And uh, his numerous publications include critical editions of most of the middle commentaries written by Ibn Rushd Averroes on Aristotle's logic. Um, he also translated. Uh, he also has written uh, and translated uh, books and treaties uh, written by Averroes, Al-Farabi, and Arrazi, as well as Maimonides. And I'm glad that we have here uh, representatives of the Department of Philosophy among us. And now, before he joined uh, the University of Maryland, uh, Charles taught at different universities, among them uh, Sorbonne, Harvard, Georgetown, where he's teaching this year, too. And now, I'm looking forward to your uh, uh, presentation. And I wish to thank very much the Merchant Center, uh, the Middle East Studies Center, and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures of the Ohio State University, who made uh, this event uh, happen. That's why they don't trust people like me with technological apparatus. I don't think I turned the microphone on that you wanted me to. But yeah. It's on. All right, fine. Since everybody was so disappointed that there is no PowerPoint apparatus for the presentation, I just want to show you that I am sensitive to that. So I brought along a um, carrying case from a conference on encyclopedias that was held at Bar Ilan. We have now represented the Jewish aspect of philosophy in the Middle Ages. And then in order to represent the Muslim aspect, I have a folder with the color of the prophet. <laughs> Hopefully that will take the place of PowerPoint. The political aspects of prophecy in Islamic philosophy is the title of the presentation that I would like to make. And I will begin with an introduction and then speak about four different themes that help us understand what's going on with Islamic philosophy and the question of prophecy or law-giving. Uh, namely, talk about the setting, talk about 
us as human beings, the human condition, if you will. And then I would like to move to a discussion of law-giving per se, as well as law-givers. The final part of that, then, will be an account of uh, the philosophers and how there are similarities as well as differences between them, among them. And finally, a conclusion. So by way of introduction, what is it that I want to do? I'd like to explain how Al-Farabi, Avicenna, and Averroes, all philosophers writing within the medieval Islamic tradition, in Arabic for the most part, but for Avicenna also in Persian, how these three thinkers account for law-giving. If you read what they have to say, it's their account of law-giving that explains how they understand prophecy most fully. So, so that's the major theme. But it's always important, it seems to me, to explain why anybody would want to talk about a particular theme, and especially this theme. There's a simple reason. Law-giving, law-giving, is something that's central to political philosophy. Law-giving is central because it focuses on helping the citizens achieve a virtuous way of life, leading citizens then to virtue. That is the key, it seems to me, to everything that has to do with understanding medieval Arabic slash Islamic philosophy. It's been very grossly misunderstood through the tradition of scholarship recently. It's, it's been misunderstood for a long time, but there are two figures who stand out, and since they've decided to begin taking pot shots at the, those who study medieval Islamic philosophy, it seems only fair to take pot shots back at them. I have in mind Patricia Krona and Dimitri Gutas. Patricia Krona, who is the director of the Center for Advanced Studies at Princeton, and Gutas, who is a professor of philology at Yale. What they have failed to understand, because they would like to see an Al-Farabi or an Averroes who writes the way Aristotle wrote his politics, namely, and especially book two of the politics, giving an enumeration of regimes, what they failed to understand is that political philosophy properly understood is indeed an account of how human beings lead a good life and an indication to the reader who's interested of what needs to be done to help human beings lead that way of life. Now, one of the things that's very important, and, and I hope I, you know, if I'm speaking in ways that aren't comprehensible, wave your hand or something so that I can come back to it. One of the things that's very important is in writing mainly in Arabic, these authors are susceptible to the simple fact that their readers, their immediate audience, has a vocabulary informed by the Quran. The, their vocabulary is enriched 
by the whole religious tradition that permeates that society. It's no accident, it seems to me, that they choose a very important term to talk about the way of life of citizens, sira. There's a, a tradition of talking about the life of the prophet, a, a remarkable human being who was singled out for some kind of special message, and playing on that to lead us to think about the way we, as not so outstanding human beings, can lead a better life. So that's what's going on in their writing and why the topic is important. And the way that I'll try to do it is to give special attention to what Al-Farabi and Averroes say about lawgiving and the lawgiver. Though some remarks will be made about Avicenna, for the most part, my attention is not to him. And there's a very simple reason for that. Whereas Al-Farabi and Averroes focused for Al-Farabi mainly and for Averroes massively on the political question, Avicenna really didn't. Uh, he says at one point that it wasn't until very late in his life and very late in his thinking that he turned to the question of practical philosophy, ethics, and to politics. Actually, in a, a manner that's very easy to figure out, it's not until the last book of his writing, his huge treatise on divine things, Ilahiyat, that he turns to this question. So it's, it's easy to neglect Avicenna just as he neglected the topic himself. For Al-Farabi, there are any number of works that one would want to look at. He was a prolific writer, and in almost all of his writings, turned to the question of politics. I have in mind, above all, his work called The Attainment of Happiness, which is a trilogy that has the title essay, Attainment of Happiness, followed by an essay on Plato, the philosophy of Plato, followed by one on Aristotle, the philosophy of Aristotle. Another book of his called The Political Regime, a book, The Book of Religion, and finally, a very important text for our purposes this afternoon, the summary of Plato's laws. So in, in looking at these works and trying to extrapolate some things, I'll try to talk about what he teaches concerning prophecy. And for Averroes, the task is a little bit easier as far as trying to focus on his writings. He wrote a commentary on Plato's Republic and a very important essay, treatise, called The Decisive Treatise. Like The Attainment of Happiness, The Decisive Treatise is part of a trilogy, and it's the, the Decisive Treatise is the middle part of a trilogy, a work that Averroes felt compelled to write because of the confusion beleaguering him and his community, the tension between religion and philosophy. So what's the setting? How, how does all of this take place? If you look at the tradition of medieval Arabic Islamic philosophy, the, the high point is a period of time that's, depending on how you want to define it, between 500 and 550 years, from about 826 until about 1406. And the figures that I have in mind in saying this is 
a man by the name of Al-Kindi, known as the philosopher of the Arabs, and who really begins philosophy uh, in his time. He died in 866, uh, lived in the eastern part of the Arab world, and represents the first attempt that we know about to come to terms with Aristotle and Aristotle's teaching, as well as with Plato and the teaching of Socrates. Al-Kindi's followed by a man known as Al-Razi, and then by somebody who will be central to our focus, Al-Farabi. Al-Razi and Al-Farabi are almost near contemporaries. Their dates are for Al-Razi, 864 to 925, and for Al-Farabi, 870 to 950. So they overlap very much. Both of them lived in Baghdad. Al-Razi had a great reputation as a physician and uh, wrote many treatises on medicine, but is also known for a couple of works in which he tries to come to terms with Socrates and with the Greek philosophy of his time in general. I'll come back to Al-Farabi later. And then immediately following Al-Farabi, there's this huge figure, Abu Ali Hussein Ibn Sina or Avicenna, who lived from 980 until 1037. After Avicenna's death, for all practical purposes, philosophy moves west, uh, before Horace Greeley came upon the scene. And uh, the new uh, dynasty that had come into being in Andalusia is now the center for culture and especially for philosophy. And so there you have Ibn Bajah, Ibn Tufail, and Averroes, all very close contemporaries. Ibn Bajah, who lived from, who, who died in 1138, Ibn Tufail, who lived from 1110 until 1185, and Averroes, Abu Walid, Ibn Rushd, who lived from 1126 until 1198, mark the high point of philosophy in the West. And above all, Averroes, with his remarkable series of commentaries on Aristotle, who, for all practical purposes, uh, made philosophy possible for Latin Christendom when they had no access to Aristotle's writings. And then there's a long hiatus from 1198 until sometime in the beginning of the 14th century when Ibn Khaldun comes upon the scene. Ibn Khaldun, who represents the last of what I would call the great period of Islamic philosophy, lived from 1332 until 1406. Of all of these people, you've probably heard most about Ibn Khaldun because he's either the founder of sociology or the founder of critical history or the first social scientist, you name it. But what the reference is is to his magnificent book called the Muqaddimah, a huge work, the introduction to a larger book of his, which is a reflection on the history of the Berbers and the Arabs. And he tries in some seven volumes to set the record straight with respect to the way things happened and the way they should be recorded. So that's that's the big setting. What 
we need to remember when we look at Arabic Islamic philosophy is that in this tradition, as distinct from Latin Christian, from the Latin Christian tradition, clerics or jurists, ulama, fuqaha, theologians, mutakalimun, do not pursue philosophy. There's a very sharp divide between those who pursue philosophy and could be considered part of the cleric class whose goal is either to explain the law, who engage in jurisprudence, fiqh, or to defend religion and talk about what makes Islam a special religion apart from all others who engage in kalam versus philosophers. That's different from what's going on, especially in Latin Christendom. Think about the figures you've studied or that we continue to, whom we continue to study when we talk about medieval Latin slash Christian philosophy. Clerics all intent upon explaining the, the close relationship between philosophy and religion and explaining above all that in the final analysis, philosophy, human inquiry, is subject to, is subordinate to faith. You will not find that argument in Al-Farabi at all, and you will not find it explicit in Averroes. Averroes is much more subtle than Al-Farabi when it comes to this question, but the way he was treated in the West, the, the epithet that was hurled at his Latin students, Averroists, and the whole idea that he set forth the double truth theory suggests that some people understood, despite his great reticence, some people understood that he was trying to subordinate religion and faith to philosophy. I, I do want to say one thing. I'm, I'm not going to talk at all about uh, Jewish slash Arabic philosophy, and just because it's not within the purview that I set up. But there are at least two figures who have to be considered when one talks about this great period of learning from the early part of the 9th century to the very beginning of the 15th century. Yudha Halevi and his book of the Kuzari, an attempt to explain and to defend Judaism against all of the attacks made upon it and to explain and defend philosophy. So that's one person. And then, of course, the great Moshe bin Maimon, Maimonides, a near contemporary of Averroes. He was born, Averroes was born in 1126, Maimonides in 1133. They lived in the same city, and Maimonides, of course, has come down to the tradition as, among other things, the author of the Guide of the Perplexed. For philosophers, above all, the author of the Guide of the Perplexed. I'll come back to this later, but I would just like to say that now that in order to understand Averroes properly and his role trying to reach out to his fellow Muslims, Maimonides is of tremendous importance. In order to understand Al-Farabi properly, Maimonides 
because he was willing to admit just how subtle Al-Farabi was and sometimes explains that subtlety is also of great importance. Philosophy in this Arabic tradition is an investigation that's undertaken for its own sake, not to further a religious goal. You've all heard the famous statement, philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. Uh, Without shocking anybody, let me suggest that for the medieval Arab slash Muslim philosophers, theology is the handmaiden of philosophy. The subordination is completely reversed. All that means is that reason predominates. Not faith, but reason. The search is for an intelligent explanation of the universe. That said, no philosopher within the tradition can be unmindful of the religious context in which all things are rooted. So now moving into the topic, when Avicenna, in a little treatise of his called um, The Division of the Rational Sciences, when Avicenna tries to explain what lawgiving is, he speaks as follows. He says that when the philosophers speak of law, what they mean is traditional law. When the philosophers speak of namus, Arabic for nomos, for conventional law, what they mean is sunnah. Right? So he puts it immediately into the tradition of religion central to all of his readers. He goes on and he says, through this part of practical wisdom, one becomes cognizant of the necessity for prophecy and the need the human species has of law, capital L, sharia, for its existence, preservation, and life to come. Through it, one becomes cognizant of the wisdom in the universal penalties, el-hudud, el-kuliya, that are common to all capital L laws, and in those penalties peculiar to one law or another, having to do with one people or another at one time or another. And it makes known the difference between divine prophecy and all of the false claims to it. Taken in those words, taken literally, puts you right into the middle of a large controversy. And Avicenna is trying to point to the idea that the philosophers, even going back to Plato and Aristotle, are not in any way antagonistic towards religion, but what they're trying to do is to show its greater breadth. That means that Plato and Aristotle are guides. One looks to them in order to figure out what it is that we human beings are trying to do. Though they're guides, they play different roles. There's a number of reasons for this, and and part of it just happens to do with transmission of learning across time. The works of Plato generally cited, the works of Plato 
readily available at that time are the Timaeus, the Republic, and the laws. Even though Al-Farabi somehow has an awareness of all of the dialogues of Plato, they're not available to be read and commented upon. There's an oral tradition that accompanies a written tradition, but as far as we can tell, those three dialogues are the ones the Arabs in the Middle Ages had access to. All of the writings of Aristotle, however, except for one, are known. All of the writings, except for the politics. Okay? And, just in case that's not enough, Al-Farabi, I think tongue-in-cheek, allows for two spurious writings by Aristotle. A letter that he wrote to Alexander and another one on theology. Uh, this is in a strange treatise of his called The Harmonization of the Two Opinions of the Two Sages, Plato the Divine and Aristotle. And if the title isn't enough to tell you that something strange is going on, open the book and you'll see that all sorts of tricks, all sorts of fireworks await you. Now, just to show you how this works, going back for a moment to Avicenna, when Avicenna speaks about law and tries to remind us that there is no tension, he then goes on and he says something exceedingly strange. It's Plato and Aristotle's book on politics in which we find a discussion of laws. And the Arabic is just as obscure as the phrase that I just gave you in, in English. Um, Kitab Aflatun wa Aristotelis fi el siyasa. What does that mean? Aristotle wrote no book on politics that the Arabs are supposed to know, and certainly no book on laws. Okay? Plato did. So Avicenna is being just a little bit loose with the facts. He then goes on, and, and this is what keeps my focus on prophecy. He says, what has to do with prophecy and law, capital L, is contained in their two books on laws, small, small L. What has to do with prophecy and think Torah, okay, which is the equivalent of Sharia? What has to do with prophecy and Torah slash Sharia is found in their two books on nomoi, on conventional laws. That's mind-boggling, and we have to figure out how that comes about. So what is the human condition? How do, why do we find ourselves talking about these sorts of things? In the beginning, when you look at human beings, it's obvious that what they are intent upon immediately is the necessary and the useful. How can they tend to food, shelter, and things that help them lead a more comfortable life? Uh, the well-being of the body, the well-being of the senses, things like that. And once that's been taken care of in a moderate manner, then pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure comes about. Pleasure that comes from understanding the causes of things, useful things as well as not useful things. And that leads to looking at statues, listening to pleasant sounds, enjoying smells, 
and so forth. It's this kind of pursuit that sets human beings apart from the other animals. We want to know about our body and about our senses. We also want to know about the causes for the things around us. As Al-Farabi puts it, the causes of the things in the heavens and on the earth. So ultimately what, that ha- what happens is that we come to discern that this thinking about the world around us is really a way of understanding ourselves, of coming to self-knowledge. That self-knowledge, the attempt to achieve self-knowledge requires that we understand the whole, the universe, and more importantly, our place in it. What are we doing here? We, the only animal, the only species of animal that thinks about what's happening. And what does that mean for the universe? I'm going to leave that as a question because to to try and unpack it would take us far too uh, much afield. But, But the point of raising it is that as you follow that thought through, it becomes clear that reason distinguishes human beings. If reason distinguishes human beings, then the perfection of reason must be the goal of human existence. And that's what we have to do everything possible to achieve, to make our reason fully able to explain the world. Ah, how do you do that? Live together, because we can't do it on our own. We have never encountered a human being who had all of the human excellences on his own. But we do see human beings who are good at a few things, and if they associate with others who are good at a few, few other things, everything works out well. Political community. Right? Let me read a passage to you from a delightful little book by Al-Farabi called The Selected Aphorisms. A book, by the way, that at first came to our attention with the title Aphorisms of the Statesman. Now, it was it was because like so many of the things that we work on in this period of time, it, the manuscripts come down to us that are incomplete or are truncated. And somebody had decided because of the occurrence of the word madani, either citizen or statesman, <coughs> that these aphorisms must be called fusul al-madani, aphorisms of the statesman. And then another manuscript that was much better came along and it was clear that what they should really be called is Fusul Montaza'a. So here's the key. It's, I'm, I'm reading uh, two uh, aphorisms to you, number 88 and number 89. Very short. The regime, taken without qualification, is not a genus for the rest of the sorts of regimes, but is rather a kind of ambiguous name for many things that are consistent with it while differing in their essences and natures. There's no partnership between the virtuous regime and the rest of the sorts of ignorant regimes. Let me just rephrase that because there's a key term there. There is no common link between the virtuous regime and the sorts of ignorant regimes. 
Now, I'll come back to that issue in a moment. What then is a virtuous regime? Al-Farabi explains immediately. The virtuous regime is the one through which the leader gains a kind of virtue he cannot possibly gain otherwise. Namely, the greatest of the virtues a human being is able to gain. The ruled gain virtues with respect to their this-worldly life and the afterlife that they could not gain except by means of it. With respect to their this-worldly life, it is, first of all, that the body of each one has the best traits possible for its nature to receive. Two, that the soul of each one has the best conditions possible for its individual nature and for its power to obtain the virtues that are the reason for happiness in the afterlife. And three, that their subsistence be better and more pleasant than all the sorts of life and subsistence that others have. Now, that's a lot of words, but hopefully it's clear. There's two things that are very important. Al-Farabi just spoke of the afterlife, but he didn't say a word about the advantages that political community has for the afterlife. He focused only on this life. Part of what's going on in the writings of people like Al-Farabi, Averroes, Maimonides, is an attempt to say things that will lull you into a kind of complacency and and thinking, assuming that what you're reading has nothing that's going to shock your religious predilections and then pulling the rug out from under you as they go on. That, this is one. You, you thought you were going to get into politics so that you would have a better life in the world to come. But politics is all about this life. The other thing that's so funny is that first passage that I read where I said the partnership between this generic regime and particular regimes. Anybody who reads the Quran and comes across this word that Al-Farabi used, used in that context cannot help but think of the terrible partnership that is condemned over and over in the Quran. The, the tendency people have of associating other gods with God. Okay. So Al-Farabi's generic regime like God stands apart. Okay. I, I don't want to push that too far but you can see where it's going. Okay. Alright. Why do we get to law giving? What, what's the need that people have for law givers and for law giving? It's really quite simple. We need a teacher. We need a guide. And so somebody comes along who's able to use instruction, persuasion, even compulsion to get people to do what they must do. This is set forth very, very clearly in that book I mentioned, The Attainment of Happiness. After talking about the kinds of things that we need to know in order to live together well, Al-Farabi comes back and talks about the deliberative virtues that help us use our understanding of the universe to put in that understanding into practice. And the moral virtue that 
guarantees they won't be misused to take advantage of the people. And it's at this point that he introduces leadership. But notes that ruling citizens is like ruling children. Sometimes you can speak to them. Sometimes you need to use the stick. And if you doubt that for a moment, please think back on the debate that we've just been going through as a nation about whether we should take care of one another's health. Or even this morning I had the questionable uh, pleasure of reading USA Today and uh, noted that this thing that's been an echo has, has started about wealthy citizens writing to the government and saying, tax me more. Mm-hmm. Uh, a kind of public spiritedness that has long been absent. What that means, according to Al-Farabi, is that what we understand by lawgiver, first ruler, philosopher, imam, and king is one and the same. It doesn't mean that they all are, as we see them around us, one and the same. But what we mean by them and what we expect from them and how they're supposed to operate in order for politics to work is one and the same. So what happens is that an attempt is made to explain what philosophy ascertains or what philosophy attains to certain knowledge. For that to be explained to the people, religion uses images, likenesses, arguments based on presumption. In in the world of the philosophers, religion is important, but it does not have the certainty that philosophy does. Religion is a way to bring people along through the speech they understand. Prophecy is the ability to set forth things in persuasive imitations. Those imitations are set forth as opinions, but they're imitations that call forth action. In other words, what religion is from this perspective is opinions, things we believe about the world around us and about ourselves, and actions, how we should act with respect to one another. And that kind of explanation and action set forth in speech is what lawgivers are all about. That's, that's the teaching that's set forth. If I've come that far, what about the similarities and the differences among the philosophers? above all between Plato and Aristotle, the way this is understood in the medieval tradition. There's a beginning point for Plato and something that he discovers, understood by the philosophers, and a beginning point for Aristotle and something about what he discovers. And let me focus above all here on Al-Farabi, but I'll say something about Verois as well. For Al-Farabi, Plato's beginning point is very simple, investigating human perfection. What is it, his Plato, Al-Farabi's Plato says, what is it that makes a man, a human being, perfect? 
And he goes around talking to people. And eventually finds out that everybody he talks to, nobody he talks to understands. And so he has to turn on himself and try to figure it out from his own thinking. Now, Aristotle begins in the same way, says Al-Farabi, and begins to investigate what humans deem to be necessary and useful. The soundness of the body, the soundness of the senses. Aristotle, says Al-Farabi, has the same beginning point as Plato and more. Well, that more is that Aristotle goes back beyond things and really tries to talk in human terms about what it is we human beings are investigating. Uh, Put very crudely, Aristotle profits from his understanding of common opinion. Plato becomes disgusted with the shortcomings in our common opinions. Okay, so that's, that's the difference between the two of them. What is it that they discover? Plato discovers the knowledge and the way of life that lead to human happiness, as well as what constitutes well-ordered political life. In, in this account, summary account that Al-Farabi provides of Plato's investigations, everything leads to a description of what Plato learned through his investigation of law-giving and of different regimes. The whole problem of Socrates and Socrates being put to death at the hands of the Athenians. And in, in one sentence, which doesn't really do justice to us, but in one sentence, what he learned was that Socrates erred because he couldn't understand how to talk to children and to dim-witted people. To put it in more colorful terms, the way of Socrates is not the way of Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus has a certain advantage on Socrates because he could talk to children and dim-witted people. Al-Farabi would like us, then, to somehow combine the two. And, And that will help us figure out how to live together politically. Aristotle never gets there. Aristotle begins his investigation into the world around us, and he tries to figure out how it must be ordered so that we can be successful. The whole issue is that what we started by deeming necessary and useful, soundness of body and senses, is not really necessary or useful. What is necessary and useful is what seems to be superfluous, fadl, namely the perfection of the intellect. And this is what drives Aristotle's investigation further. The problem is Al-Farabi's Aristotle comes up against an insurmountable impasse. He cannot explain fully why human beings are in the universe. The knowledge of that is not present. Well, we sort of know that. That's why we're here. Okay? But the knowledge of that is not present, and so Al-Farabi concludes his account of Aristotle, saying that we therefore must attempt to make philosophy, to achieve philosophy in the way each one of us can achieve it. 
Now, another sign of, of how these philosophers use, how these medieval philosophers use the ancient philosophers is the following. Averroes, this remarkable commentator, explainer of Aristotle, writes a commentary on Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. And as you know, the ethics seems to end with a kind of Tra what we would say in present-day terms, trailer for the coming attraction uh, of, about the politics, a kind of announcement of the politics, the book called Politics. Well, when he comes to write that book, he always says, you know, it's too bad, but um, it's not here. It hasn't reached this island of ours, this uh, place, Andalusia. I've heard about it, but never seen it. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm just going to write a commentary on Plato's Republic because it's the same thing as Aristotle's politics. I'll let those of you who've read the politics and the Republic laugh, all right? Uh, it's, it's really quite a whopper. And, and the only thing I can imagine is that Averroes has heard enough about the politics to know what a whopper it is. But, but what he does is he uses Plato's Republic and the training of the guardians in the Republic as being the major goal of what political life is all about. In other words, Averroes gives a kind of, it gives a teaching that's very close to, if not identical to, Al-Farabi's on politics. Another thing that's characteristic of this tradition, praise for Al-Farabi all through the tradition, especially when the tradition moves west to Andalusia, and blame for Avicenna. Uh, Averroes can barely mention the man's name. In fact, over and over he refers to him as that man. Uh, Avicenna pushed things too far, opened exploration too far, and made philosophy almost impossible. Um, the, his excesses brings blame upon the philosophers. And it's those excesses that prompt Averroes' popular defense of philosophy in the decisive treatise. That's what leads to the third point about this notion of the philosophers, their similarities and differences. Above all, one has to provide for the community. And let me just read to you a couple of passages from Averroes' decisive treatise where he talks about what prophecy and law-giving entails. For him, the law intends only, quote, only to teach true science and true practice, end of quote. He then explains true science and true practice. In his words, true science is cognizance of God, may he be exalted and blessed, and of all the existing things as they are, especially the venerable ones among them. And cognizance of happiness in the hereafter and of misery in the hereafter. That's what true science, or if you prefer, true knowledge is all about. True practice, again, in his words, is to follow the actions that promote happiness and to avoid the actions that promote misery. And cognizance of these actions is what is called practical science. Now, in other words, the lawgiver is trying to do for the people in the community 
the same thing as the philosophers were trying to do in their setting forth practical science and theoretical science. Let me bring this to a conclusion. I'll do it very briefly because I see time is running away. Three, three points. However we approach the question of what it means to live a good human life, there's one answer. To attain happiness. To be as fully human as possible. To have human perfection. Now, it's agreement about this answer that links philosophy and religion. And, and from that perspective, the goal of religion is the same as that of the virtuous city. That's why Al-Farabi can assert that the meaning of philosopher, imam, first ruler, lawgiver, and king is the same. If there's disagreement, the disagreement arises only when proponents of religion <coughs> insist on restrictive interpretations of texts. Texts that they probably don't understand. And that's what Avera always is trying to do with this treatise that he wrote, the decisive treatise. Finally, what's the highest perfection for a human being? Well, according to Al-Farabi's Plato, and according to Al-Farabi more generally, to know the substance of each existing thing, especially the substance of a human being. And to live so as to achieve that knowledge as far as possible. Now, this question of substance is, is what leads us off into all other kinds of speculation. But, but what, is, what does it mean to be and to be human? but I'll just draw two very short practical conclusions. In other words, from that kind of definition, the highest perfection is to live a philosophic life. And this emphasis on practice in the definition links philosophy and politics. The emphasis on practice leads us back to the lawgiver, to asking, what's the intention of the law? What's the intention of the lawgiver? A final image. If you think in the terms that I've set forth evoking the images of Al-Farabi and of Averroes, you'll see the lawgiver as a physician who has prescription for health. We need to follow that lawgiver. We need to follow that physician. We need to explore the prescriptions that he has. And the problem with people like Al-Ghazali, who will just be mentioned once, the, the theologian jurist who criticized the philosophers, the problem with people like him is that were we to listen to him, we would end up not heeding the physician, not listening to the prescriptions. So that's the dilemma that the philosophers see us in and try to help us resolve. Thanks very much for your patience, and I'd be happy to answer questions. Question? Uh, yes, uh, the early Muslim philosophers of the 8th century, the 10th century, you mentioned Al-Kundi and Al-Farabi and uh, 
And he was a what? Clinician. Let me be, begin sort of where you begin. But what's fascinating, you're absolutely right. Avicenna comes down to us uh, as the great physician. His book on medicine uh, continues to be used in some places even today. Uh, I, I studied uh, Arabic philosophy with an uh, Iraqi who was bor born in Karbala, whose father was what is called a Tabib Yunani. His father, another way of referring to him, of course, would be to say he's a pharmacist. But, but he was, he was a, a Greek physician. And his father's book of medicine was Abu Ali ibn Sina's Kuliyat, the generalizations about medicine. This book continues to be important. Al-Razi, before him, was also a physician. Averroes, after him, was also a physician. People say that Al-Farabi knew medicine. He didn't write about it, and we don't have any knowledge of him being a physician to rulers. We do about Averroes, and Averroes fellow uh, Cordovan, Maimonides. Maimonides was also a physician and, and was a, uh, when he went to Cairo, ended up being the physician to one of the uh, sultans, uh, in the Fatimid sultans in Cairo. But it's precisely Avicenna's willingness to delve into these things that are hidden and to try to explain them that brings the ire of a Ghazali, of a defender of religion, upon the philosophers. It's precisely his willingness to do this that makes it necessary for Averroes to defend religion, I'm sorry, to defend philosophy against that attack. So it's those, those forays out of what we can possibly speak about intelligently that cause so much trouble. And, and that's, you know, and I, I said, uh, and I mean it, I, I say it uh, because it's really so funny. Uh, that man, you know, it's referring to him in this, in this way, um, a, a lot of uh, difficult times were created by his unwillingness to be more circumspect. Uh, we, we, we can't deny his greatness. I mean, Here's a man whose uh, gift to the world, among many other books, is a huge corpus, a huge body of 
40 volumes about learning. Okay? He, he wrote a book called Shifa, The Healing, that goes through all of the different kinds of learning, ending up with the last book on Ilahiyat, on divine things, and tries to, to explore the universe. Okay? So very, very great. Um, what I tried to suggest is misguided because he goes too far. Okay. He, he doesn't understand. Yes? Well, um, at, at me, Gutas uh, has no use. For me, Gutas has no use. Um, for for Gutas, but we're not worried about that. Um, the the issue for Krona is she, she tries to look at Al-Farabi and understand how Al-Farabi is a, a teacher about politics and claims that he cannot possibly be considered one because he doesn't write intelligently uh, about regimes. And uh, he has no prescription for the best regime. He only has uh, snippets about the imperfect or ignorant regimes. That's correct. But that's not what Al-Farabi is all about. And, and what, what they failed to, what, what she's failed to understand in, in that uh, foray, she's done it in an article and also in her most recent book, what she's failed to understand is what these thinkers consider philosophy to be all about, especially political philosophy. And what it's about is understanding the way of life that's the good way of life and how to bring citizens to follow it. Gutas is really even more impossible because he wants to claim that there's no political teaching in anybody until you get to Ibn Khaldun. And that uh, the reason that Ibn Khaldun is a political teacher is because Ibn Khaldun has prescriptions about how cities ought to be ordered. Well, you know, the, the argument that I just made about what political philosophy is, the fact that over and over when you read uh, either Al-Farabi or Avicenna or Averroes, they try to explain how Plato and Aristotle's teaching leads us to live in community it's something that just hasn't been understood. Um, I, I, and I, th I think for, I'll just say one word, I think Gutas is much more interested in being a philologist and, and one of the problems that I find, I as a non-philologist find with philology, okay, that's an important condition, I as a non-philologist have the following problem, that it seems that the goal of philology is to tell us what we shouldn't read. Okay. And, um, <laughs> the best, if I may add something, the best combination would be to be a philologist and a philosopher. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. I saw somebody else have. Yes. Um, I, I really don't know where to begin, so it may be a two part question. Um, uh, so, uh, we've been advertising uh, our article on Plato and Aristotle, and I'm very interested um, in, in, if you will, the Republic in particular. Um, don't know anything about the traditions that you were and about. Um, so let me ask this question to start. If you ask almost anybody in uh, anywhere from the 3rd century B.C. up to the 5th century A.D. about happiness in Plato and Aristotle, one of the things you're liable to hear is, yes, happiness is the final end, and what we mean by that is likeness to God, homoiosis. 
typical way, especially if you look at the back uh, last few chapters of the staff, what have you. So when we started out talking about religion and philosophy, the theology of philosophy, what keeps coming to mind is, well, how in the world could, could there possibly be a tension? Since for these folks, Plato and Aristotle, it looks like theology, there may be an account in which there is no such thing as a divine being, but once you think that you have to explore the possibility of divine being, it looks like our end is to become as much like him or her or it as possible. So I'm just wondering, is that part of the tradition that makes it through to the people you're worried about, the homoeosophic kind of uh, yeah. doctrine? Yes. Um, but, but go ahead. You, no, you then, then, then kind of a follow-up. Um, uh, of course, that makes you think that, well, the philosopher stands to the polis, or the community, as the divine being stands to the cosmos. And there might be a way of thinking about how political philosophy, ethical philosophy, and call it what you will, cosmology, all come to the same. I mean, that's really what Jungian picture at least, uh, focused on, on a prime mover. Um, but the second question I had um, um, makes it sound as though, for your folks, I, I'm, and I'm struggling here because I'm not quite sure if I caught what you said about prophecy and religion, and, and, but you said something like this. Prophecy is the ability to set things out in a persuasive imitation that calls, I think, others who aren't, as it were, philosophically knowledgeable to action. And that makes it sound as though prophecy and perhaps religion, if I can allude to Plato's Republic again, is somewhere in the second or third stage at best in the divided line. It is, it is, it is like doxa. It's, it's, of course, the philosopher is going to think that dox is subordinate to news and dox is philosophy. So it sounds like you guys are, in effect, sticking it to the religious authorities by saying, basically, you've got second-class information, second-class knowledge. Am I mishearing no, what you said? No. Yeah. But, you know, isn't that the way things are? Well, it, it, it may very well be, and that would be a descriptive claim about the politics no, 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 of our, this our, world. Oh, but our knowledge. I mean, we, we really would like to have knowledge rather than opinion. We don't, right? Uh, you know, so that's we're trying to work through. But let, let me let me start all over again. First of all, uh, being like God. There's a beautiful little treatise by Al Razi on the philosophic life. Um, please read uh, the translation that I did of it, rather than Arbery's translation. Okay. okay. Um, and and what he says is that the goal of philosophy is to become as much like God as possible. Um, I cannot think right now of any place where, where Al-Farabi says the same thing. But, but the notion is what Al-Farabi does say in the book of religion. It's a book in which he tries to show what the best regime would be if, if politics is a part of philosophy. Political science is a part of philosophy. And at the very end of this treatise, he says that what we need to do is we need to look at the governor of the world, Mudabir al-Alam, and we have to try to model ourselves, qua rulers, as much as possible after him. And so what, we, what we're trying to do is we're trying to gain from the awareness that we have of, of the hierarchy in the world, the hierarchy that ought to exist in the city. So there's this constant going back and forth. And, and 
and that really is um, important. Uh, the Patricia Crona, as as director of the Institute of Advanced Studies, uh, had a um, conference one summer in which she was able to bring together people from all kinds of areas of, of learning, of pre, um, pre-medieval and a little bit of post-medieval learning. This is where Georges and I first met. And what happened there was a, a number of the people who are talking about the earlier traditions are pointing to that precise thing. Schultrumpf um, in particular. But yes, there is a problem about uh, the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 10. But what people like I also focus on and probably focus on more is the beginning of the ethics where in talking about what is the highest human good, Aristotle talks about being able not only to achieve, for me to achieve my good, but to achieve the good for the whole city. Just one quick follow-up. Um, if, you, if you go this route, um, looking at the beginning, uh, do the arrogant philosophers, which are the Roman philosophers that you're worried about, think that, if I can use the word, we're the democratic universalists, do they think that in a, oh, as a polis, everybody is capable no. of? No. So the, more, the reading off of the republic is no, the whole way. Nor to, nor to Plato and Aristotle, right? I don't want to comment on that. Okay. Not my Plato does, but um, I'm an outlier. I, I guess so. Okay. Uh, um, so no. <laughs> Shortly, God willing, uh, tr- a translation of Al-Farabi's political regime will appear at Cornell University Press. In the political regime, what's marvelous about it is a taxonomy of the ignorant regimes. Among the ignorant regimes is the regime called the democratic regime. And and it looks very much, at first glance, like Book 8 of the Republic and Socrates' tirade against the Debos. Okay? Um, the problem is, what do you set your sights on as the ultimate goal? Freedom is not enough. That, that's the core of the argument. Please. I want to ask a big, naive question. And if it provokes loud hisses from the philosophers in the room, you can dismiss it and go on to one of my errors. Um, I'm interested, you said you're not a philologist. Well, I'm not a philosopher, but one of the terms you use, it comes up in places where I hang out among others, and I'm interested in what light you can shed on the historical evolution of it. The word piazza, which um, seems to have a pretty good run in your philosophical text, especially in the meaning of politics, how how closely does that correspond to the wider usages or or the semantic range of of piazza and general Arabic usage in the period? in the Ottoman Osman period, one finds this word associated with the Sultan's power of arbitrary discipline over his slave servants. So it has a connection with politics, but really has to do more with being able to execute your slaves at, at will if they don't violate their discipline. And, and in, in that context, the, 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 the 
word that seems to acquire the meaning of uh, politics in modern times. Is that a philosophical illusion? I mean, did it always have this in the philosophical illusion? I mean, yeah. the explanations yeah, I've heard, yeah. just to, to wind off with a little bit of humor, uh, I remember the discussion not far from where Patricia Cronin hangs out uh, a number of years ago where people said, well, originally the, the roof in which it comes down so had to do with training a horse. Yep. And then CI said it meant this arbitrary power of discipline. In modern times, it's part of the meaning of politics. And I left me focus on up and said, except in Lebanon where it means political corruption. <laughs> so that, that's why well, you're I sitting mean, across from a Lebanese, so I'll... <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not no. the one who said that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, okay, but no, I mean, originally, we, the, the word comes from bridle, right? <clears throat> Pulling a horse's head. And, and then we have to try and, we've got a whole bunch of things we have to name and we have to talk about. And, and, you know, language is difficult in that way. So you, you want to talk about leadership and you want to talk about rulership. And so you get a word about talking about a, a chief, the chef, okay, rais, okay, and then you use it to talk about riasa, uh, chefdom or, or chief, chieftainship, okay. Um, and so then what do you do? Yeah, we're taking care of that. And now we got this sais, masus, siasa. Well, let's just call it power. <clears throat> and oh, problem. Because there's this other city, there's this other word that means city, Medina, and that also can have all of the um, significances that polis and politike, okay, and and so it's you know language is not exact, and and it's an attempt to to work these things out. But I, I don't know the Ottoman tradition at all. Uh, if it got corrupted, if it got used in that way, I would think it's a corruption. Um, in, the, in the philosophers, uh, siyasa is this attempt to talk about an aspect of ruling. And so, so Al-Farabi <coughs> writes a book, and the title of the book is Kitab al-Siyasa al-Madaniya, okay. the book of the political political. No, that's not going to work. <laughs> okay. And so you say, well, let's take Madania and we'll make it the adjective. You know, it is in a position of adjective, and we'll call it political. Well, what do you do about Siasa? Well, the book of political leadership. Well, it doesn't work too well. Let's just call Siasa regime. Okay. And so then what, what's really happened is that Siasa has come to have the same function uh, as Politeia without all the other baggage that, that we've added onto Politeia. But so that, that's all that's happening in this attempt to, to understand this. He, again, I mean, Gutas, bless his heart, he's, he's a, a, a lovely husband and father, and I'm sure he doesn't beat dogs on the street. Um, but when he comes to this, he can't figure out what to do. And to, and to, to see his translation of this little term called Kitab al-Siyasa al-Madaniya, you say, where did this man learn Arabic? Uh, you know, he, he makes a, um, a, con a construct out of a, 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 a term that doesn't have it. I think it's, he translates it as the book of 
the governance of cities or something like that. No, that's not what's going on. You know, so that's, it, that's just part of our attempting to make sense of the phenomena, uh, the manuscripts in front of us. Okay, yes? Could you expound a little more on your beginning comments regarding that difference between Christendom and yeah, Arabic yeah, yeah, Islam yeah. in terms of the relationship between philosophy and religion? And, you know, just yeah. open that up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, I have a very dear friend who used to be a Franciscan priest, Stephen Brown, teaches at Boston, teaches theology at Boston College. And once in the course of a uh, presentation that I made, I flippantly said, yeah, and for Al-Farabi, theology is the handmaiden of philosophy. Steve Brown, uh, A, Franciscan, okay, so very uh, docile soul that's been uh, trained to take the slings and arrows of human life with equanimity. He, he just became furious. Um, one shouldn't talk like that. that, that that's, it's clear that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, not the other way around. Okay. All I'm trying to say is that when you read these philosophers, what they're doing is privileging reason as the key and subordinating faith to reason. Um, if you read the Latins, the medieval Latins, the other way around. You, co you come up against, uh, you know, Thomas. He's very happy to have you investigate philosophy. But you've got to understand that in the end, there are things that philosophy cannot understand. Faith, however, can understand. Al-Farabi would say, there are things reason cannot understand. End of sentence. There are mysteries. This is part of the Avicenna problem. Avicenna tried to explain the mysteries and didn't. Okay. Does that, you, you, you don't look. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I never heard this expressly before. Okay. You know, and I'm not a well, I'm not in a theology school. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if, you know, you're saying that in that Arabic, Arabic, Islamic world, when, when, when philosophy, Philosophy was the epitome. It was the supervisor of the religion. And then you go into that, that focus is then on the accomplishment of reason in its furthest extent. Can we can you help me understand why then, in my view, it appears as though that world that depended upon if if it did Socially, while the Christendom world that put the religious ahead seemed to move beyond. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I would, um, I don't know, are you talking about post-enlightenment? I don't know. I'm I mean, 18, Well, good, no, but you're, you're, you're part of the problem. <laughs> uh, 18th century and beyond. Okay, but remember what happens. Uh, my, my period 
ends at the death of Ibn Khaldun, 1406. About 100 years after Ibn Khaldun, 15-something or other, Machiavelli comes along. And all of a sudden, we begin to get very different understandings of the world, and we begin to learn that we don't really have to be believers. As a matter of fact, we don't have to take any kind of uh, pull to fix our, our goals on other than our desires. Okay. And then you have Bacon and Hobbes and Descartes and Locke, you know, and, and it goes on. Like their medieval Latin predecessors and their medieval Muslim predecessors, these people know scripture very, very well. When you read Thomas Hobbes, it's, it's a lesson in, in understanding what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament all over again. But the, you know scripture in order to reject it. Okay. And, and then finally we get to uh, the freedom that, that comes about post-enlightenment. Um, my people, my people, my story ends in 1406. What happens from 1406 until about 1860-something, 70-something, is emptiness for the most part. Uh, yes, there are many people writing about different things in the East. I would call what they're writing about theosophy, not philosophy. They're attempting to understand the Godhead, the, the unity of God. And it gets to be, um, for me, very difficult to understand rationally. The discourse is not rational. The, the, what happens in the 19th century is this strange man comes out of God knows where, India for sure, maybe Persia, Jamal al-Din al-Afghani. And he starts to get people to think again about what's going on. Well, it was an abortive attempt because he managed to, every time that he got folks like you and me to think, he got the authorities to worry. And so he was chased from one place to another and ended up probably being poisoned by um, some Iranian folks, some Persian folks in Turkey. Um, and then there's just, just strange kind of attempts in the Arabic Muslim world since, and also Persian world since then, to jumpstart things all over again. Uh, Hassan al-Banna trying to organize the community leading to the Muslim Brotherhood. Sayyid Qutb being much more political doing the same kind of thing. And then, of course, you know, I mean, I'm jumping fast here. Uh, Ali Shariati and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. And then you know, what, we're, what we're now facing today. We may today have some real reformers on the ground. Um, Tariq Ramadan may be a real reformer. There's a man in Egypt, a televangelist by the name of Amr Khalid. Uh, he says, I don't want to step 
too hard to answer. He's as empty as our televangelists. Okay? But he's also very, very charismatic and does great things with youth, getting them to think beyond the immediate. Um, and there are people in Morocco uh, doing the same sort of thing, and in Tunisia, um, in Lebanon, there's Hassan uh, Nasrallah, who has organized a whole community. Um, will these will these individuals be able to uh, bring the Arabic Islamic world, Persian world as well? Uh, into the 21st century? The jury's still out. We, we don't know. But what's fascinating is that they're speaking uh, and being heard in a much more positive way than any of their, their predecessors. I mean, that's a long answer to a short question. Yes, I think in addition to a picture, Well, uh, it, but remember the argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, my question is about uh, the early Islamic priests. Well, they liked, uh, they have the philosophers of their world in their the Plato's Republic and his laws. When was this really came? How early this became a sort of notion that, well, for many Muslim philosophers at the beginning, that an ideal state was when the messenger of God had direct lines with God and then revelations and his knowledge, this and that. Then after his death, his Khatam al-Nazim, then ulama was the anbiya, that ulama should be the one that he would be among the fuqaha and others. Mm -hmm. When was that, how early was that concept really originated? That's what I'm looking for. I'm very much interested to know. I'm not a philosopher. I'm just a scientist. So this, this, this ulama was the anbiya. Among the Shia branch still, uh, in the Niyabat of the, of the 12th Imams, it has to be this ulama, which would be, should, should rule a Muslim sure, society. Sure, sure. But the Sunnis have a little bit different than this. Mm. So this ulama warisul anbiya. No, I mean, uh, uh, remember that uh, as in so many things that we do when we try to talk with one another in a formal setting, uh, I've given a presentation that's focused on the philosophers. And, and somebody could give a very interesting, uh, attractive presentation that focuses on the fukaha, the jurists, and, and on the whole history of jurisprudence. As could one give, uh, I'm not sure how close that would get to a political statement, but, but we'd learn what to do in order to live our lives in accordance with the sharia, the revealed law. And somebody could do a, also a presentation giving the history of theology and talking about the different problems, human freedom and things like that that have been talked about. So, uh, yeah, that's all there. What would be interesting to know and, and, and to study is what is the relationship between somebody like Al-Farabi, 870-950, and the jurists and theologians of his time. What kind of arguments did he get into? To the best of my knowledge, uh, he didn't. But then uh, the argument that he got into, and, and here's something that's very important from things I said earlier, 
I spoke about Latin Christendom, but there's a whole other branch of Christendom that's important. Eastern, non-Latin Christendom. When the school closed in Alexandria, ancient learning continued because it was taken by Christians out east, up the coast of the Mediterranean, Antioch, and then further east across land to Haran and to Mar and places like this. As a young man, Al-Farabi came across a Nestorian Christian by the name of Abu Bishr Matha, who taught him Aristotelian logic. And then when Abu Bishr Matha went to Baghdad, they met up again when Al-Farabi came to Baghdad. And Al-Farabi continued to study with him. Big issue in the Islamic world. Words, speech, grammar. If the Quran is God's word, then the one science indispensable for human well-being is the science of language. We have to understand this language, Arabic, in which God spoke. So somehow Abu Bishamata, older man, gets into a public debate with a hotshot young grammarian. Grammarian wipes the floor with him. It just, Abu Bishamata didn't, the records that we have just didn't do it. So, what Al Farabi does write about is the relationship of philosophy and language. And he tries to show that as important as it is, language is subordinate to philosophy. So, <laughs> is this? argument that's going on, you know, and then that continues, and, and um, there are some fascinating scholars, contemporary scholars, specialized in grammar who can carry on that debate and, and show the relationship between uh, the philosophers and the grammarians across time. Uh, I, I think, you know, I think that would be interesting. Thank you. Thank you.